Today we're picking up where we left off last week in 1 Samuel chapter 30. But we're also going to be reading Psalm 69. So you can go ahead and thumb, you know, both of those spots. 1 Samuel chapter 30, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. And we're also going to be reading Psalm 69 verses 1 through 5. Now, (laughs) if this is your first week with us, we are picking up with David again. We've studied through David's life several different times, David and Goliath, David running from Saul, and now we're picking up where David is now dealing with the Amalekites and a, and a massive season of loss. And what we're, what we're hoping to learn from our study of David and the Amalekites is, is how to endure trials. Now, last week we understood and we learned that the trials come for God's people. Amen? They come no matter what. Becoming a Christian does not exude you from difficult seasons of your life. But, as we learned last week, those difficult seasons have a purpose. They come from the hand of a loving God to grow you, to refine you, to mature you as a believer so that you may walk in faithfulness more and more abundantly throughout your days. The dross will be burned away. Amen, church? The dross will be burned away by the fires of trial and tribulation, and we will be made more perfect, more in the image of Christ as we continue to grow and mature in him and his words. Now today, last week we talked about where trials come from. We talked a little bit about the purpose of a trial. Today I want to talk about our disposition. The, how, how should we think, behave, act when we go through trials ourselves. That's, that's what I want to be talking about today. And we can, we can get a lot of that, both from 1 Samuel 30, but also from Psalm 69. So go there with me, 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until there was no more strength to weep. Verse 5, David's two wives had also been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. And if you remember, we talked about that. To be a leader means that when trial faces your organization, you will be the one under the spotlight, and we all must accept that if we are called to be leaders of God's people. Amen? Amen. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now go with me to Psalm 69. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let's pray. 
and begin this morning. Father, we thank you that you teach us through the power of your word. We thank you that we can hold fast to your witness, to your word, to your proclamation, and have a foundation by which, with, by which to live. I pray that today that we would see and be confident and know in our hearts that the trials that we endure are from you and have a good purpose. But Father, I also pray that you would be teaching us how to walk in trial as your people. Help us today to lean in and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look back at Psalm 69 again because there's two principles that I want to draw out very early here. First off, David is in a trial, but he is also on trial. And we see that in both texts, but I want to look specifically at Psalm 69 with you again. Look at Psalm 69, verses 1 through 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. Have you ever been here before? We were talking about in our hermeneutics class this morning in Sunday school, the importance of the Psalms and how it not only tells you what the person who's writing the Psalm is enduring, but it also tells you the disposition of their heart in the midst of that trial. And that, hey, we got babies in here. Y'all know that, right? And that's a good thing from God. Amen. Y'all going to be fine. We're going to hold on. You're going to make it. What we must understand is that the Psalms are, are written for us to not only know that trials happen, but to know the, the right dispositions for us to walk through them. And he's crying out to God. In fact, it says um, he's cried out so much. He says, my throat is parched. Have you been there? Have you been there where you've cried out to the Lord so greatly? You've cried out to the Lord so much and, and you're, you can barely speak whenever it's done. You feel as though you're weeping. David is clearly in a trial, but David is also, look at verse 4, Psalm 69, verse 4. David is also on trial. Look at verse 4, Psalm 69, verses 4 and 5. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Remember the accusations that he's falling under in 1 Samuel 30. You remember this, right? They're, they're, they're going to stone him because this is his fault. This is his fault. And he's saying, Am I is this my fault? Do I have to restore this now? Look at verse 5. Oh, God, you know my folly. It takes a very interesting turn here. He, he's, he's on trial. He sees the people coming after him. But he, he turns the, the psalm in a different direction on, in verse 5. Oh, God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. And 1 Samuel 30 teaches us that in the midst of all of this, he strengthened himself in the Lord. John Calvin, the, the great reformer, John Calvin, on his dying bed, he died with these words on his mouth. Lord, you bruise me, but it's enough to know that it's from your hand. Amen, church? In the midst of all these trials and disciplines, he and David are going through the same disposition. Lord, you bruise me, but it is enough to know that it is from your hand. Today, I want us to jump right in and try to understand what our disposition should be when we face trial. First, we learn here from Psalm 69 that the first thing we ought to do is be fully open in the midst of trial. Now, I want to qualify and clarify that a little bit as we walk through. 
If you, if you go through Psalm 69 again, look at those tail two verses, or verse five, rather. It says very specifically, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I've done are not hidden from you. In the middle of David's trial, he's not, he's not pulling himself up by his righteousness. In fact, in fact, he's examining himself in this moment. He's, he's looking at himself and he's saying, I, I know that I've sinned. I know that I'm a failure. I know that I've done wrong. I know, I know all of those things. During the disposition of his trial, he is being open with the Lord fully and completely. In, in other words, what he's saying to the Lord is, my life is in your hands. You alone had the right to end my life. You, have, you brought me into this existence. You know who I am. I am a weak and broken sinner. Do with me what you will. In the midst of trial, this is the disposition, one of the dispositions that we as God's people must carry. We must be completely open and realistic with the Lord. None of us are sinless. Amen, church? And therefore, we don't walk through trial as one solely righteous one, one only who is, who is st taking steps through their difficulties, through their situations, through the accusations that people are bringing against you, through all of these things, saying, I am completely innocent. Because as Christians, oh man, you know you're not. You know that we are, we are broken and sinners. I don't want to overplay the John Calvin illustrations today, but let's do another one just for fun. There was a season of John Calvin's life where he was enduring heavy, heavy, heavy persecution from those around him. And at one point, he went to a meeting with a room full of his accusers. That just sounds relaxing, doesn't it? <laughs> he walked into a meeting to hang out with a bunch of people that hated him. Now, John Calvin also, towards the end of his life, was, was very ill and very frail. And they didn't have medicine that we have today, so the, the common cold could hang on for much, much longer and become pneumonia and could, could weaken you significantly. And there were many ministers over the history of the church who, who were so weakened by sickness and frailty throughout the durations of their life, and yet they had fruitful ministries. John Calvin walks into this meeting of people that hate him, of people that are his accusers. He walks into this meeting full of politicians and all these different people who want to remove him from his positions of power. They wanted to kill him. And as he stepped in, this weak, old, frail John Calvin opens his shirt. Have you, have you ever seen somebody old and weak and frail? Have you ever seen their skin on their ribs before? It's enough to make you cry, but their, their skin holds to their ribs. You see this frailty, this, this skinniness, this, this lack of health. And what is he doing in that moment? He's saying, you want my life, then take it. He's being open with them. He's like, this, this is who I am. This is my frailty. These are my, these are my bones. This is my weakness. That's picture. That picture is being totally open, total vulnerability, not only before the Lord, but even before his enemies, and especially in the times of his suffering. When we are in a trial or when we are on trial, we need to have no covering between us and the Lord. Amen? We do not hide ourselves. We do not hide our sins. We do not hide our frailties. Instead, we are open to him. In other words, think about it like this. If you are not open to the Lord, 
about your, about your sin, about your weakness, about your frailty, about the things that you're struggling with in your times of, of trial. He might be trying to teach you through this sad season in which you're walking, but if you're not open, you're not going to hear it. Are you following with me? If you're, not, if you're not open to him and his correction and his, his teaching and his instruction of you, you won't know what he's trying to tell you. The Lord may be training you up for, for a great calling in which he's going to send you on mission to be, to be a great missionary for his church for generations to come, but you can't know it because you're too busy running from him in the midst of trial rather than being open in your time of weakness. Are you following with me, church? Our disposition, our disposition as God's people should be one of reality and openness with the Lord whenever we are enduring trial. Now, that's a lot easier said than done at times, right? Yeah. Which is why it is so incredibly important that we as God's people exist in covenant with other believers. Because when I'm going through it, I need one of my friends, my true friends in the Lord, to have the courage to look me in the eye and say, what's the Lord teaching you? I do want people to encourage me and reassure me and pat me on the back and tell me things are going to be okay, but I need one of you guys to, to have some guts and come up to me and say something along the lines of, what's the Lord teaching you through all these times of trial, difficulty, darkness? What's the Lord trying to instruct you and where is he bringing you to? There's always a ton of reasons that we could be suffering in a season of trial in our lives. That's very true. And it's not always easy to tell exactly what it is or why it's happening. And, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying we got to figure out the exact reason of what the Lord is trying to do. But what I am saying is whatever the Lord is trying to do, be open to him doing it. If our disposition is to go through difficulty, to go through suffering, to go through trial, and to run away from it, and to try and make ourselves more comfortable, more peaceful, more relaxed in the midst of our trial, then we might very well be missing what the Lord is teaching us. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your difficulties. If the Lord has brought you to this season, he's brought you there for a purpose, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Learn from what the Lord is teaching you. And one of the most important ways to do that, one of the most important ways to be open before the Lord is to do what David did in Psalm 69, is to confess your sin. Psalm 69, verse 5, it's right there. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. You see, here's the deal. If you're a Christian, it's true. You might come under false accusation at times. That happens. Amen? At times, you come under false accusation. But there is always a true one. There's always a real sin that lands. And your calling as God's people is to confess your sins before the Lord. How on earth could we ever weather the storm of false accusations unless we admit and confess the true ones, right? How on earth can we, can we endure the storm of people assailing us with things that aren't true about ourselves, about our family, unless we confess our sins, our real sins to the Lord? If we are walking around with unconfessed sin, trial will hit you harder. You will not be able to endure it well because you are hiding your sins from God. And look, Adam and Eve tried that did not work. Do you, you remember that moment, right? Adam and Eve, after they sinned against the Lord, they went and hid in the bushes. What on earth were they thinking? And then God's like walking through the garden. He's like, hey guys, 
why are you in the bushes? <laughs> why are you trying to hide from me? It doesn't work. See, the only person that we're, we're convincing that we can hide our sins from God, it's not God, it's ourselves. Confess your sins to the Lord. In the time of trial, confess your sin to the Lord. There's a strong opportunity that there's a desire in the Lord's heart to cut a sin out of your life. And what, what is his promise? If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will do what? He will forgive us our sins and then do what? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And part of that cleansing process depends upon our confession. If we deceive ourselves so greatly, if we say that we have no sin, what does 1 John 1 say? Then the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, listen. The only person you're trying to convince that you don't have sin to deal with in your life is yourself. You're not convincing the Lord, and nine times out of ten, you're not convincing anybody else around you. Amen? Listen, when I've got brothers and sisters in the Lord, I know when they're suffering. I know when they're under conviction. I know when they're in trouble. And nine times out of ten, you do too. You do too. We're not tricking anybody. Instead, we're just heaping dirt on our own heads and burying ourselves farther and farther and deeper down. My friends, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of carrying these secret sins, some for decades? Aren't you tired of carrying these burdens on your shoulders, this, this everyday wonder of, of what if they found out? What if they knew, what if they really knew about me? What if, what if my secrets really came out and they knew who I was all the way down deep? Would they still love me? The answer clearly in the scriptures is the Lord absolutely would. The Lord looks upon your sin and he sent his son to die for it. And if you will just confess and repent, he will forgive you and the weight is off. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I would encourage you to do it. But there's this moment in the story where Pilgrim is carrying this burden. Do you remember his, his burden, his bag? And it's this enormous weight that he's just got on his shoulders all the way along. And it's, it's inhibiting him. It's keeping him from walking. It's keeping him from growing and maturing as a Christian. It's keeping him from, from moving forward. But then when that weight falls off, now he can run. Now he can move. Now he can make the trek, make the journey, and grow in joy and full freedom in the Lord. And that's what the Lord would have for all of us. If you want to grow in the midst of your trial, confess your sins and be free. And what does the Bible say? Those whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You want to be free? You want to have that burden off your back? You want to be done and move forward in grace throughout the rest of your life? Then confess your sins and then make a habit of it. Confess again. And if you sin again, confess again. And if you sin again, confess again. And that will grow and stir an affection in your heart for the Lord and for his grace like you've never had before. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But only God's people confess. May we be God's people. So first, if you're enduring trial, confess your sins to the Lord. Don't waste it. Utilize it and follow the instructions of Psalm 69, verse 5. Second, then 
We should not only be open to the Lord, but we should also petition the Lord. Psalm 69 verse 6 says this, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. What is he saying? He's, He's saying to the Lord, God, for your sake, for your sake, save me. For the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, save me. Don't don't let your name be trampled by these other people. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame because of me. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought down to dishonor through me. David cares for God's people. This is not a selfish prayer. This is a prayer where David's central concern is for the well-being of the people of God. And his prayer is ringing. God, let them be saved and don't let them be distracted by the things I've got going on. Help me. He cares for God's people. And he makes his prayer to the Lord based upon God's promises. One of the easiest things that you can pull from the scriptures when you read and study them often is that God cares about God's glory. Amen? God cares about God's glory. Now, initially, that sounds like a selfish statement, doesn't it? God cares about himself. God looks at himself. God is self-centered. But here's the deal. If God is God, then God is perfect. Amen? And what doesn't it make a lot of sense for a perfect being to want to put his perfection forward for the good of the rest of the universe? Of course it does. God puts his glory, his perfection on display so that we may look at him and delight in him. And his glory and his perfection is not a selfish thing. The God of this universe is about his glory is about his name, and is about his reputation. And so David petitions based on that promise. God promises his people honor, so David even asks for that. And at the last day, all, will be, all who have been brought low will be exalted. All who have put themselves last will be brought first. And so David's asking for a little bit of that now. <laughs> He's asking for a little bit of it in advance. And that's the truth of the gospel promise. In the last days, in the days of judgment, what we will experience as God's people is the last being made first. The martyrs whose bones were buried and burned will be dug up. The saints who have been converted to ash on the form of a post or being burned alive will be, will be brought up again. The meek and lowly will be made first. The despised, the glorified, they will be brought forward. But until that day, we've got some dishonor to go through. Amen? We've got some dishonor to go through as God's people. The Bible talks about how we will be mocked, how some of us will be killed, how we will be ridiculed, how we will be considered fools in the ways of the world, how all these things are true. So be it. We will not be honored to the uttermost, but we will be in the last day. But there is a sense in which God does begin to give out pieces of that inheritance to us now in this life. The Bible says he does promise to honor his children, and he does do that to a degree in this life as well. Jacob prays this way. He was threatened by the wrath of Esau, and Jacob says to God, 
O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For only with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hands of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that I may come and... that that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, now watch this, what Jacob does. Are you paying attention? Watch. Jacob says, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. Jacob in that moment, reminds God of his promise that he made to him. He, he petitions based on God's glory, on God's name, God's reputation, and on God's promise that was made. And we can do the same. You may petition the Lord based on his promises. As you go through trial, as you go through suffering, you may petition the Lord according to his word and according to his promise. The Bible says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Amen? Lord, I am being made meek, but you promise an inheritance. Please help me. You see how simple that is? Lord, I am, I am scared, but you promise comfort to your people. Please comfort me. Lord, I am, I am being made lowly. I am, I, am poor. I am stranded. I am alone, but you promise to never leave nor forsake me. God, help me. You can petition God based on his words. He's made a promise to you. Believe his promise. Amen? Believe his promise. Believe his promise so down deep in your heart that you call upon God to make good. Now, this is not treating God like a vending machine, okay? So some of us, I've got to state this caveat here. We aren't making demands of God. We're not putting our quarters in and expecting God to pay out. God is God, amen? And he may or may not fulfill his promises in the way in which we would like him to fulfill them. But that does not mean that you cannot ask. You can and you should. He's your father. And what do kids do with their dads? Y'all had kids before. A lot of y'all had kids before. What do kids do with their dads? Hey, dad, can I have that? Y'all know what I'm talking about? That is the disposition of a child. Hey, 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 mom, can I, can I have that? Every time we go to the store, I've got, we've got two older kids, 13 and 10, and we've got two younger kids who are, oh, wait, hold on, six, five? I can barely even remember my own age anymore. So somewhere in there, six and four. Let's say six and four. That sounds good. I've got two little kids. And my two little kids, especially my four-year-old, she's in that sweet spot right now. You know what I'm talking about? Every time we go in the store, she's like, I can have that. She doesn't even, it's not even like a question. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like a, I can, it's like a declarative statement. I'm, Father, I may have this. It's true. If my kids can do this, why can't I? Do you get me? We pray to God as though he is our father. Therefore, why don't we treat him like our father? Hey, dad, you already told me I can have that please. And then you trust him. And if he, if he does so, then amen. Yes, glory to God. But if he doesn't, then it's a good reason. And it's better for you that you not have it at that particular season in your life. You can trust him either way, but you can ask. 
So in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your, of your pain and of your suffering, Lord, I ask for relief. You promise blessings. You promise encouragement. You promise strength. Help me based on your glory and on your promises. If your trial is sickness, health is a gospel promise. Uh-oh. Okay, just hold on. You're going to be all right. Just hold on. Listen to me. The Bible makes that clear. The Bible says, by his stripes we are what? Healed. Okay? The Bible also promises that ultimately we will receive bodies in the new resurrection, the new heavens, and the new earth, and those new heavenly bodies will be immortal bodies that will no longer be sick, no longer suffer, all of those things. So health is a gospel promise. Y'all see that, right? That's perfectly clear. But there is a degree in which that blessing is poured out upon God's people in this life as well. The wicked get some health too, but everything that they have will be taken from them. But our health as God's people is a portion of our inheritance that God has promised to us now in the gospel. So preacher is telling you right now that it is okay for you to pray to be healed. Amen? Pray to be healed. If you got sickness, and some of y'all do going on in your houses right now, if you've got chronic illness that you've been dealing with for the last little bit, you should pray to be healed. And appeal to the Lord based on his promises. Father, you say by your stripes we are healed, and I pray for healing. I call out to you. You promise that there will be an inheritance for me for, for generations to come. You promise to a degree. In, in, in the Old Testament, it says that young men will, will live. It will, it will be odd for someone to die at the age of 100 at some point as the Lord continues to unfold his promises throughout the history of the world as we continue to move forward. Uh, uh, it would be odd for someone to die at the age of 100 one day. What does that mean? That means that progressively we move forward more and more and more into health. That's a gospel promise. And so we can hold fast to that promise and say, Lord... Please bless us. If your trial is poverty, guess what else is a gospel promise? Man, I'm just saying all the weird stuff today. It's going to be all right. But wealth from the Lord is a gospel promise. Amen? Amen? Well, y'all, y'all, y'all will get there. It's going to, I know, it's going to be okay. What will the meek inherit? The meek shall inherit the wealth. <laughs> there it is right? If the meek inherit the earth, who is the wealth of the wicked stored up for? The wealth of wicked is stored up for the righteous, the Bible says. Wealth is a gospel promise. And if part of your trial that you're enduring in this life is poverty, then you can ask the Lord, God, please help. (laughs) God, please help. And that is not outside of the bounds of God. Now, that does not mean that the purpose of God is money. And if you are pursuing God for the purpose of wealth, God ain't going to give you none of that. Mm. Or he will as a form of judgment. You ever seen a wealthy person that you just look at and they are actually under the thumb of their wealth? They are a slave to it. They are a bond servant to it. And they can never escape it. It actually owns them now. Often it begins to chase them around in the form of debt the notes that they have to pay every month, or they feel as though they can never take a break from work because as soon as they do, someone else will take their job and they'll lose everything. That's a slave. That's not free, right? That's a bond servant. But the Lord promises that he will reward those who faithfully serve him and those who uh, contribute to him and his tithes and offerings and all of those things that he will pour out blessings upon them. Malachi 3.10 says explicitly, they will pour out blessings upon them until there is what? No more need. So you can ask the Lord for that. He might not give it to you. And if he doesn't, it's for your good. But you can still ask him. 
If you have a prodigal child, maybe you've got some kids that are a little older and they're starting to run away from Jesus a little bit because the, the world has sunk their claws into them and they're holding them away from the Lord. If you've got a prodigal child, we read a whole bunch of verses already and when we were just baptizing those little kiddos that make it very clear that the salvation of our children is a gospel promise. Amen? They're covenant kids. It is the promises are for you and for your what? Children. As clear as a bell. And for generations to come. And if you've got a kid who's running away from the Lord and no longer trying to follow the Lord and all those things, the Bible says, I will be God to you and to your children. Pray to the Lord and say, Lord, you promised this. You promised this. Please. Lord, I, I can have that. You can ask him. And if he appears to you in a vision and the whole world splits open and you have this massive vision and God's like, that's Esau and I hate him. It's not going to happen. But, okay, then you can stop praying. <laughs> but until that happens, don't stop praying. Don't stop. Petition him according to his promise. Father, you said that these promises are for me and for my children. And God answered David's prayer. David was getting ready to get stoned by the people who, like, two weeks ago loved him, okay? And they were all picking up rocks, being like, hey, I want to, let's, mm, we got to wrap this up. That's some fickle people right there, some bitter people. That's what was happening. And God answered David's prayer. He wasn't stoned. And God answered Jesus' prayer as well. Remember Jesus' prayer? Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He's praying for, for vindication in that moment. And God did do that by raising him from the dead. Listen, if the Bible teaches us that, a, that an evil tyrant will hear the, the petitions of a nagging woman, that's an illustration that Jesus uses. The Bible teaches us that an evil tyrant will, will hear and finally do the petitions of, the, of a nagging woman. Then how much more a loving father for his child? How much more a loving father for his heir? Now, with your kids, look, you're, okay. The disposition with your children, whenever your kids ask for something, right? The disposition of every good parent is, I want to give this to you. Don't you? Like, that's, dude, I love Christmas. Because Christmas is just like, we just pulling out all the stops. Here's this thing, and here's this thing, and here's this thing. And this is going to get thrown away next week. But hey, you know, like, it's fun, man. Christmas is fun. The kids, they play with the boxes more than most things. And, you know, they're just loving life. They're loving life. And we're pouring out blessings. We're showering our, the disposition of a parent is to give gifts to their children. That's the disposition. But sometimes... You know, your kid is in Walmart or whatever for the fifth time in a row, and they walk down a certain aisle, and they're like, I can have that. And you got to say, uh, not this time. Why? Because you're training your kids, right? The disposition of a parent is to want to bless their children, but you're also training your children at the same time, and so you don't want them to become little spoiled brats. Amen? Amen. And God doesn't want that for you either. Amen? And that means at times, he says no. For your good and for his glory. I've been a pastor for 10 years-ish. Well, no, if we count the time that I was a youth pastor. Do you count that? 
uh, maybe half time, maybe half time will count. So about 10 years. I've been a pastor for about 10 years. I've been through some stuff and I've seen my friends go through some stuff as well. And let me just speak to you for just a moment. The temptation in these times, whenever you're going through very, very difficult trials, is to, is to get away, right? Is to isolate, is to hide, is to crawl under a rock, is to get away from people, is to be alone and crawl into the fetal position and, and just hope that everything stops turning. Or maybe your disposition is, I'm going through trial, so I'm going to take control of this situation. Do you, anybody in here like that? I'm going through difficulties, so I'm just going to, I'm taking over. I'm going to fix all these problems myself. Both of those are wrong. Okay? Both of those are wrong. The way that we endure trial to the glory of God is we live life openly before him. We don't abdicate and we don't subjugate. We don't, we don't run away and we don't run to. We instead operate with a spirit of openness. And we ask the Lord, search me, O God, and see if there is any, any shortcoming within me, if there's any sin within me. And then we confess our sins unto the Lord, and we, we, we repent and walk in faithfulness with him with all of our days. And, and we lean in to what he is doing. And then we petition him according to his promise. Because the gospel promises are there. The gospel promises are to us as God's children. We recognize that everything's coming from the hands of a good God, that the sovereignty of God is enduring in the situation. We open up totally to him. We let him have his way in the situation and we petition with trust for our father. Amen? Because this is what the Lord is calling us to do as his people. And because he is worthy of your trust. In the midst of your deepest, saddest hour, when you didn't even know it, Christ died for your sins. Christ died for your shortcomings. While we were still sinners. That's what that means, by the way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that when we didn't even know we needed him, he died for us. And because of that truth, we can walk in freedom and peace and joy, knowing that his trials have a good purpose. We can be open with confession of our sins and make appeals to him based on our status as his children for years to come. Let's pray.